As we mentioned last Lord's Day, we want to begin today a study of the Judeo-Christian heritage of the United States of America. We're going to call this study a study of America and God. And this morning we want to look specifically at the concept of religion and politics. Because there are so many people who actually think there is no place for mixing Christianity and politics. Some folks are afraid if you start to mix Christianity and politics together, you're going to promote a social gospel. And of course, we absolutely do not want to promote a social gospel. Because a social gospel means churches that are only trying to make this world a better place to go to hell from. When you start as a church preaching the social gospel, that's when the church has substituted culture and society for Calvary. As we look around our country today, there are so many people that actually just almost have thrown up their hands. And they want to say, well, it's just too late for America. There are a lot of folks that feel like that with all the things that are going on, that we have passed the point of no return. There are others who actually see politics as being dirty. And if you look at it, it can be pretty dirty. And being dirty, it's beneath us as Christians, and we shouldn't have any involvement in it whatsoever. They see all politicians as crooks. <laughs> and you wonder, uh, how in the world would you ever get an idea that a politician was a crook? They feel they just go into the voting booth, they hold their nose, and vote for the lesser of two evils. And I'll be honest, there have been times I've done that. These people are weary. They're weary of scandals, they're weary of lies, they're weary of hypocrisy, and they're weary of double dealing by their leaders. They're fed up with the political news section of the paper looking like a tabloid. And they've actually lost all heart to be involved at all. And what we see, and we see it more and more, is in America of the 21st century, there are groups that continuously attempt to intimidate Christians. And we've heard the ACLU and the Freedom from Religion Foundation over the years loudly beat the drum talking about the separation of church and state. And what we have done is we have heard them spout about the separation clause that exists in the Constitution. And we've heard it so much, we've heard, as I said, we've heard the drum beat so loudly that we've actually started to believe the propaganda that they put out. Now let me ask you a question this morning. Do any of you know where the phrase separation of church and state appears in the Constitution. It doesn't. 
That phrase, separation of church and state, never appears in the Constitution. However, you can find it in Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto. The phrase was coined in the United States from a letter that the principal framer of the Constitution and third president, Thomas Jefferson, wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association. And what he was doing in that letter is he was assuring them that he would keep the government out of the church. It would actually be a good thing if our current leaders would actually read what he wrote. And I doubt seriously that those holding office today have ever even read the letter. In fact, I would doubt that a lot of them even know that it exists. But what Jefferson was saying was that never again would there be a government-sponsored church like in England, a state-sponsored church that everyone was forced to attend and that everyone was forced to support. And yet what we see in the 21st century United States of America is we see government that seeks to oppress religion. During this pandemic that we've been going through, or as I like to refer to it, the present distress, we have seen governors of states close down churches, threaten to arrest preachers for holding worship services, ban singing in public worship services. You can still gather in the streets to protest, and you can still gather in groups that Big box stores like Walmart or Costco or Home Depot or Lowe's. But don't you dare, dare attempt to have worship in a church building. You see, they want to oppress religion. Well, that is, unless you're Muslim. And then you are protected because you cannot engage in hate speech and, and say anything against them. But if you happen to be Christian, or if you happen to espouse Christian principles, you are oppressed. Well, here's what the amendment to the Constitution actually says. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, hear it, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Folks, if there is such a thing as separation of church and state, it is intended as a one-way street. And then some are going to say, oh, no, 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 absolutely not. They wanted to keep them both separate. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, let's think about that in a logical and common sense way. Now, granted, I will admit that common sense really has nothing to do with politics or policy in America today. But let's use ours anyway, because that's what God gave it to us for, was to use. Our first president of the United States, when he raised his hand to take the oath of office, he put his other hand on what? 
That's right, it was the Bible. Well, how did they determine they would open sessions of Congress? With prayer. And if they have those prayers to open the sessions of Congress, who's going to lead the prayers? Chaplains. And how are the chaplains going to be paid? With tax dollars. Does that sound like our founding fathers wanted to keep God out of government? It doesn't to me. And then, by the way, if you start thinking about opening sessions of Congress with a prayer, that's also a mystery to investigate. Why is it that boys and girls in school cannot open their day with prayer, but Congress can? I guess it's because of so many other things that those elected to our national offices feel like that they're above the laws they sit and vote on and make for the rest of us to go along with. Now, oftentimes, there are many of us who have a natural distrust for the government. Like, you know, the story, the two greatest lies of all time. Number one is the checks in the mail. Number two, I'm here from the government to help you. Now, personally speaking, I have an intense dislike. That probably puts it mildly. For the nanny state that we've become in this country. Now I'll not go into anything current because I don't want to delve off into something that's going to create a big stir and be controversial. But I'll mention an example of the nanny state. And that is that several years ago someone suggested a warning label for hot dogs. And I'm not making this up. Here's an excerpt from the Washington Post, February the 28th, 2010. High risk. A term used to describe skydiving, brain surgery, and texting your girlfriend while your wife is in the room. And now, the hot dog. Last week, the American Academy of Pediatrics issued a report on the dangers of childhood choking and called for warning labels on the foods kids most commonly gag on. These include grapes, carrots, candy, and especially the frank, which Gary Smith, a research director, <coughs> excuse me, a research director at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, and lead author of the study described as particularly high risk. So high a risk that he would like it to see it completely redesigned. Maybe the answer is hot dog strips that dissolve like breath fresheners. And you could call the product dog breath. I like that. Or ballpark strengths, franks you pull apart like string cheese. Or hollow wieners with the middle carved out. Or my, my personal favorite, uh, I, I, I'm thinking about trying this, hot dog smoothies. Doesn't that sound yummy? As Smith said, there are millions to be made by the company that comes up with a child-safe dog. The writer of the article continues, Now, no one can dispute that it's a good idea to cut a hot dog into little pieces if you're feeding it to a little person. 
I sure did when my middle school age sons were younger. My friend who has a toddler told me she was making a hot dog for herself the other day and just automatically sliced it lengthwise. Parents know their kids are not champ chewers. That's why we buy baby food. But to deem an item that's been around almost as long as intestines to be suddenly high risk suggests that when it comes to parenting, risk now means something a lot less risky than it used to. Seriously? A warning label on a hot dog? And yet we have warning labels on nearly everything. There are actually warning labels on football helmets. They warn you that you can suffer a head injury by playing football even with a helmet. Really? Really? Who would have thought you could suffer a head injury playing football? All this government interference in our lives reminds me of a story I heard about a farmer. It seems that a government surveyor brought his surveying equipment to a farm to do some work, working for the state. He knocked on the farmhouse door and he asked the farmer for permission to go into one of his fields and take some readings. The farmer had no hospitality for any federal, state, or county officials, so he refused to give the man permission to work in any of his fields. He thought that maybe the government was going to take some of his land for a public project. I will not give you permission to go onto my land, the farmer said. The surveyor then produced an official government document that authorized him to do the survey. I have the authority, he said, to enter any field in the entire country to do my work. Well, the poor farmer is faced with the authority of the federal state and county government, so he unwillingly opened the gate and allowed the surveyor to enter one of his fields. The farmer then went to the far end of the field and he opened another gate. And through this gate, one of the farmer's fiercest bulls came charging. Seeing the bull, the surveyor dropped his equipment and began running for his life. And the farmer shouted, Show him your paper! Show him your authority! Religion and politics makes me think of a man we read about in the Bible who was a godly politician. We talked about him a few months ago in one of our Sunday morning sermons. A man by the name of Daniel. We read the story of Daniel in the book that bears his name. Darius was the king of Babylon. The young man Daniel was a favorite with Darius. And Darius made him what we would call prime minister or secretary of state. And yet no man can gain such a high position without exciting the envy and jealousy of others. And Daniel did that. Now this is going to be a real news flash for you. Demagogues are not something new in government. There were demagogues in Babylon. Imagine that. These demagogues, like many demagogues, were so appreciative of their own abilities that they considered it a personal affront that this young man, Daniel, was elevated to such a high position. Old Babylon was afraid of young Babylon. And so these demagogues, they 
flattered Darius and asked him to make a decree that anybody, anybody that made a petition to anyone except the king for a period of 30 days would be put to death. Darius did not suspect any foul play, and he did not suspect ulterior motives, so he made the decree. And these demagogues had achieved their purpose. They know that nothing, nothing will keep Daniel from sending petitions to God for 30 days. Far from being afraid, Daniel goes on with his supplications three times a day. He's found on the housetop praying to God. He's caught in the act. And he's condemned to being devoured by the lions. So rough executioners of the law seize him and hasten him to the cavern. Now I want you to use your sanctified imagination this morning. And I want you to use your ear of faith. And I want you to hear the growl of those wild beasts. I want you to use your eye of faith, and I want you to see them pawing at the ground, stirring up the dust. And I want you to see their eyes roll as they bare their teeth. <clears throat> and these monsters approach Daniel, and they've got an appetite that's keen with hunger. These beasts, with one stroke of their paw, one snatch of their teeth, can leave Daniel dead at the bottom of the cavern. But Daniel receives a strange welcome from these hungry monsters. They fawn around him. They lick his hand. They bury his feet in their long mane. And that night, Daniel has calm sleep, pillowing his head on the warm necks of these tamed lions. Darius the king has an attack of insomnia that night. And he does not sleep well. He loves Daniel. He hates the method by which Daniel has been condemned. All night long, Darius walks the floor impatient for the morning light. And as soon as the first light of morning shows, he hastens to see the fate of Daniel. He finds Daniel alive and well. And Daniel is brought out of the den. And then the demagogues are hurled into the den. And no sooner have they struck the bottom than their flesh was torn, their bones cracked, and their blood was spurting through the cracks of the rocks. Here's what we learn today from the story of Daniel. A man or a woman may take their religion into their politics. Daniel had all the affairs of state on hand, but Daniel was still a servant of God. Had Daniel not been a thorough politician, he could not have kept his elevated position. But all the thrusts of officials, all the dangers of disgrace did not make Daniel yield one iota of his high-toned religious principle. Daniel stood before the age in which he lived. Daniel stands before our age. And Daniel will stand before every age until the end of time as a specimen of a godly politician. 
And that's what America needs in the 21st century, is men and women with the courage and the commitment of a Daniel. We need men and women today willing to become involved in the political process who have a real commitment to God and not just lip service to the Judeo-Christian heritage of the United States of America. We hear a lot today about reforming government. It is absurd to expect that men and women who have been immersed in political wickedness and have spent 20, 30, 40, or 50 years in politics and immersed in political wickedness would come to reformation. The hope of our nation is in young men and young women coming up who have religious principles. To hope and to pray that they will have patriotic principle and Christian principle side by side. And also to hope and pray that they do not swallow everything they are spoon-fed in liberal, secular, progressive universities by unbelieving, ungodly, heathen professors. There are those today that say religion and politics do not mix. I want you to read with me a passage of Scripture. It's in Matthew chapter 22. It's seven verses, verses 15 through 22. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt you me, you hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God. When they heard these words, they marveled, and they left him, and they went their way. Now we'll come back to that in just a minute. <coughs> Pardon me. First of all, let me interject at this point in this lesson this morning. Some things I do not believe. I do not believe we should have an established state church in America. The founding fathers were 100% correct in not sanctioning any particular religious group. But folks, somehow, we must stem the tide of humanism. And we must stem the tide of secular progressivism so that people will understand freedom of religion does not mean freedom from religion. 
We talked a few moments ago how we've heard much about the wall of separation that exists in the Constitution. And there's just one problem with that. It's not there. We've allowed the anti-religionists, the secular progressives, the heathens, to beat that drum so loudly we think it's in the Constitution and it simply is not there. It's like the law professor one time told his students, if the law is on your side, hammer on the law. If the facts are on your side, hammer on the facts. And if you don't have the law or the facts, hammer on the table. It's like I read one time to say black is white is crazy. But to say black is white and beat both fists on the table and do it loudly, that's oratory. I do not believe we should have an established state church in America, period. Secondly, I do not believe that preachers should ever endorse political candidates from the pulpit. It's perfectly legal. Uh, at least it was until Senate Majority Leader Lyndon Johnson came along in the 1950s and there were religious groups opposing him and so he had the IRS code amended. But that's another story. It's perfectly legal for preachers to endorse candidates from the pulpit. It is lawful. But it is poor judgment. Remember, it was the Apostle Paul who said, All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. I do not believe that it is my place as a gospel preacher. I do not believe it is any preacher's place to tell people who to vote for. That's a decision each and every person has to make for themselves. That said... My duty as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to declare the principles of Scripture that apply to issues that confront Christians, even those issues that are political. It is also my duty to point out principles of morality, honesty, and decency in order that those might be applied to the lives of those who are running for public office. Now, back to the scripture we read in Matthew 22. The trap here is set for Jesus. Now, it's easy to see the trap here that the Pharisees induced the Herodians to set for Jesus. If Jesus refuses to sanction the paying of tribute to Caesar, he'll be accused of sedition against the Roman government. If he consented to sanction it, sanction it, he's going to be held up to the Jews as unpatriotic and not fit to be thought of as the Messiah. And so what Jesus does is display for us his consummate wisdom by the course he adopted. Civil rulers have claims, and Christians cheerfully yield them their due. Yet... Folks, we must remember that God has claims also. And His demands are most sacred and most momentous. We owe duties to the government. 
Religion does not allow us to renounce earthly citizenship. It is a duty for Christian men and Christian women to take part in the political process. Because our not taking part hands over public affairs to those who are not guided by Christian principles. And that is to degrade the state. And quite honestly, far too much degradation of the state has already happened in America. There's a quote that's attributed to Edmund Burke, a British statement of the 18th century. And that says, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Now, God's Word enjoins certain requirements on us toward the civil government. One of those is homage and subjection. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For for this cause pay you tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. We owe them homage and subjection. But we also owe them something else. We owe the civil government thanksgiving and prayer unto God on behalf of them. In the first letter that Paul wrote to his young son in the gospel, young timid Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Now, civil governments may at times demand more than their rights. And if if unjust civil exactions are levied, as citizens, they may be peacefully yet firmly resisted. Interference in matters of conscience must be resisted because of our character as Christians. And if government crosses the line and legislates for the conscience, then they intrude on the solemn claims of the God of heaven. However, 
we must keep in mind that Jesus Christ did not come as a political agitator. Jesus ever conducted himself as a law-abiding citizen. Anyone who claims to represent the Christ and conducts himself or herself as an agitating rabble-rouser has no concept of the person of Jesus Christ. But Jesus did come to regenerate the state as well as the individual. And He worked at this task from within and spiritually. And Jesus inspired the principles upon which good government must be carried on. Now, the claims of God on our lives cannot be neglected. The claims of God are higher and more momentous in their character than anything else. But let's understand there is no collision between the secular and the religious. We can render Caesar his due while we are also rendering God his due. Politics does not exclude religion any more than religion can dispense with politics. God is to be given religious belief, homage, and obedience. We are enthroned Jesus Christ as Lord and Master and King of our lives. And we must stand in awe and fear of God. We are to give Him reverence. We are to give God praise and thanksgiving. To God must be given universal obedience. The laws of God must be read, known, understood, and practiced. Now listen to this. Politics must not under any circumstances be substituted for religion. The very best of service given to Caesar will not free man from his duty to serve God. Now here's something that's going to shock you and shock your senses. We are living in a highly politicized, partisan, polarized society. And that is especially true with the upcoming presidential elections. And there are some that want to say, well, whose side is God on? People have asked that question down through the ages. Do you remember your Civil War history? It was in 1863 that Abraham Lincoln overheard someone say he hoped the Lord was on the Union's side. Lincoln replied, I know that the Lord is always on the side of the right. But it's my constant anxiety and prayer that I and this nation should be on the Lord's side. And that ought to be the prayer on all of our lips this morning and every day. It should be their lips, uh, the prayer on our lips for ourselves, the prayer on our lips for our nation, that we are on the Lord's side during these troubled, perilous partisan, polarizing times. The clock on the wall tells me our time is gone. Until we're together again, may the Lord richly bless and keep you.
is our prayer in Jesus' name.